If you got your Bibles, open to Psalm chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one like we did for that young lady last week. Uh, this song, uh, maybe it is not the, your style of music, but this is a song that um, f- many people are listening to, and, and you can read the comments that uh, it's a song that's speaking to a lot of people and encouraging them and, and, helping, the peop- and helping them. And you're like, how in the world does that help anybody, but uh, it may not be music of, uh, that you, or music style that you listen to, but it is, uh, it is connecting with today's culture. So one of the things that we try to do in every week, uh, every week during the series is not just give our own opinion about what the song is saying, but to try to find out from the artist, what is it, what's kind of the meaning behind the song. Now, Ariana Grande, she's never answered this question, and uh, in her interview, she, there's nothing that she's kind of said, this is what's going on here, but the speculation is from, from music critics and um, from people who follow her music a lot is um, that it's in response to an incident that happened at one of her concerts last year. So you may... Uh, you may not be familiar with this, or maybe you'll remember this after I say it, but it was on March 22nd of 2017, Ariana Grande was performing a concert in Manchester, England, and during the last song in, of her concert, uh, a suicide bomber um, uh, attacked um, at her concert. And so when the bomb went off and then the concert was ended abruptly, uh, people were very fearful. People were panicking, trying to get out of the, uh, out of the arena. Uh, parents were separated from kids. It was just chaos and confusion. No one knew uh, if there would be multiple attackers, and, and it, was, it was bad. And at that, from at that bomber uh, in that moment killed 22 people, injured, nine, if injured 59 others. And of those casualties, some were uh, young girls who were fans and who admired Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande canceled her tour after this event and, um, and her, her manager, and she's even spoken about it a little bit, but she was deeply broken at this uh, uh, and, and experienced some trauma from it herself. And but the thing that kind of affected her the most was the death of some of her fans. You know, that people who looked up to her and admired her were, were, were now dead because they were attacked at one of her concerts. This song, No Tears Left to Cry, was the first single she released after that bombing. And, um, and so what people are speculating is that uh, she had experienced deep sorrow, but now at this time as she's releasing this song, like she, there's no tears left to cry. She is, um, she's going to move forward and she's going to um, help other people to move past what they've experienced, to move on with life and um, not just to move, f- move forward as a shell of who they are, but uh, what she's speaking to is you know, it's a new mentality, and really, we're going to move forward. We're going to have fun. Like, it's not going to keep us from, uh, from living life. One music critic uh, trying to understand the song said, it is the sign of Grande moving forward, her private grief turning into catharsis to be blasted into the airwaves. 
They're saying, I'm in, you know, this song, which is speaking to people, people are listening to, and it's, in, it's encouraging people. Um, this is what she's doing. She's healing, and she's going to help other people to heal as well. In Psalm chapter 6, King David has written a song that we're about to read, and, and it's 10, uh, it's 10 Bible verses long, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read that, the entire thing, since we have that luxury today. And what we're, what we're going to do is look at, and you'll see some similarities between his song and her song and some of his language and some of the things he's experiencing, and, and we're going to talk about that and try to understand that. So I'll start reading at verse number one of Psalm chapter six. David writes, O Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. For the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? Verse number six. I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. Go away, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord will answer my prayer. May all my enemies be disgraced and terrified. May they suddenly turn back in shame. As you read that, we, what we don't want to do is just put our own interpretation on this. What we try to do when we open the Bible is, and not just to pick a few lines from it that make us feel good, but to say, why did, why did the writer write this song? What was he trying to say through it? And David has written this song, and he's using this language, and what he's talking about is his reaction to, his, to the way he sinned against God. And sin is anything we do that is opposite or disobedient to what God's called us to do. So, um, for example, if uh, the Bible says don't lie, and if you lie, that's a sin, and God may tell you and tell, speak to you and tell you to help someone, and you just don't want to, you don't feel like it. And so that can be sin. And so David's responding to the sin in his life that he's done against God. And I want to go back and look at verses 6 and 7. Knowing that he's talking about the sin in his life and how he sinned toward God, listen to his response on that. I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all of my enemies. He's talking about his sin that he's committed. And he's experiencing deep sorrow and immense emotion because of what he's done toward God. He's experiencing sorrow because of his sin. Now, that's to his reaction to this. We, some of us would say he's overreacting. And, and if we just look at our own life, which is what I want us to do today, how much reaction do we have or do we have any reaction at all toward the sin we commit against God? 
Our response probably for most of us is we make light of our own sin and we make much of ourselves. Let me explain that for a moment. People can sin against us. And you may have heard that saying before but not really understand what it meant. So if someone can sin, they can lie. But if they lie to you, that means they've sinned against you. So someone can murder, but if they murder your friend or a loved one, they've sinned against you. And when someone steals or if they steal your stuff, they've sinned against you. Abuse, deception, uh, anytime someone sins against you, it's hideous and, and, and often it is very painful and always it's wrong. You probably know what that feels like. You know how you feel when someone sins against you. You know what it is when someone's cheated on you. You know what it is when someone's stolen something from you. You know what it is when someone's hurt you and harmed you. And you know how painful that is. You know how, um, you, you know how broken that makes you feel. But you know, do you know what is worse than someone sinning against you? It's when you sin against God. But our reaction isn't that, and that's how we make much of ourselves and we make light of our sin because if someone sins against us, we're outraged. But when we sin against God, we don't care. And we're saying that we're more important and what happens to us is more important than what we do to God. Think about that for a second. We know that all sin is equal. There's not one sin that's worse than another. So cheating on your homework is not here and murdering someone is not here. They're not at different places before God. And we try to, uh, we try to scale our sin like it's the menu of Buffalo Wild Wings, and it does not work that way. All sin is equal, and all sin separates us from God. So whether your sin is religious pride or your sin is cannibalism, uh, definitely society, according to society, there's vast differences. But according to God, they are both sin that needed Jesus to die on a cross so you could be forgiven. They are equal. But we, again, don't respond that way. And when someone sins against us, us, we're very concerned about that. We love to talk about it. We're, we're, we pray about it. But when we sin against God, our reaction should be greater than when someone sins against us. Someone's lied to you or you've lied to God, which breaks your heart more. Someone steals your bike or you steal from God, which affects you more. Your boss calls you in on your day off or you neglect the Sabbath, which brings more sorrow into your life. We're only concerned about ourselves so often. What we see from David's song is that we need to be more concerned about our relationship with God and what we're doing to him than anything anybody is do, has done to us. What happens is when we read in the Bible and, there's, and we're confronted in the Bible and the Bible's speaking against something in our life, or maybe on a Sunday morning I talk about something, and, or you're just, just living your life and 
we'll say things and we'll question things and, and have a conver- people have a conversation with me like, how can it be bad? I like it. How can it be bad? I feel like it makes me a better person. How can it be wrong because it's not hurting anybody? And, and even if you do begin to feel convicted and conviction is like the pressure of God for something better. So it's, a, it's a, gu- a good godly guilt that you're feeling because God's telling you it's something better. So if you eat uh, an entire chocolate cake or you could have eaten an apple, like you feel guilty because, and it's a good guilt because you should have eaten an apple. Like you get that. Like there's a good godly guilt that he's saying, hey, there's something better for you if you can obey me in these things. And if you begin to feel that conviction, like, hey, maybe there's something wrong, and you begin to talk to some of your friends about it, they will at that point begin to say things to you like, um, you, know what, you know what, you be you. Don't worry about that. Like, don't, don't listen to that. You, who even knows the Bible really meant that? You be you. They'll say things like, you know what, do what makes you happy. That's what's most important your happiness is. And they'll, maybe some will even say, don't you feel bad about that? Not even for a moment. Essentially what they're saying is, don't feel sorrow for your sin. And I just want to say, like, and what we're going to look at as we look through the scripture is, I think there's an importance to sorrow. And I think... And, 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 I'm, and I'm telling you today, like, there is something to sorrow, feeling sorrow for our sins that we don't want to avoid and we don't want to ignore and, and really that we want to pursue. So as we look at this scripture, three things, main things we're going to pull out of it, and we'll put it on the screen for you so you can, you can capture it and let it sink in. But... The absence of sorrow can mean the victory of sin. So if you don't feel sorrow in your life over sin that you've, uh, that you've done and sin that you've, uh, that you've in, in ways that you've sinned against God, what that can mean is that sin has won in your life, that it has gotten the victory. I don't know if you've ever driven a new car uh, or driven a car that wasn't yours, a rental car or something, and so you get in the car, you're used to driving your 18-year-old, uh, your 18-year-old vehicle, and you get in a car, a brand new car with new brakes, and what happens the first time you hit the brake? Everybody in the car goes lunging forward. Everybody lurches forward because you're used to having eight inches of travel on your brake pedal, and you go to hit the brake, and it's just, it, they're so sensitive that everybody flies forward. And, uh, and that's what you'll say is you're apologizing to everybody with coffee, scalding coffee all over their, all over their blouse. Uh, blouse, that's a funny word. So, as you, as you apologizing, uh, sorry for ru- ruining your brooch, Aunt, Aunt Gertrude. She, the, um, you say these brakes are really sensitive. I'm not used to that. Well, you know what? In our life, you can remember if you've, if at one point you made a decision to follow Jesus, you can remember there being a time you were sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking in your life. That your conscience which is the part that God put in you that's speaking to you not to do things that are disobedient to God, where it was a lot more sensitive. And you'd go to do something, and, it was, and the brake pedal, your conscience, was a lot more sensitive, and so you'd stop a lot sooner, definitely a lot sooner than you do now. What's happened is you've followed God for a long time. It's like your conscience is worn out, and you've wore it down. And what used to, where you used to stop so much 
faster and quicker. Now it seems like it takes you a lot longer to stop. And some of you, and in some of your areas of your life, you seem to have worn down your brakes completely. And there's just no stopping. There's nothing that it seems like God can do to, to stop you from the path you're on. You just, you don't even care anymore. This is just how you're living. And this is what you're doing. When you, an absence of sorrow is essentially saying, there's no breaks on my life anymore. There's no place where I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to bring conviction or correction or change in my life. I'm going the direction I'm going. The absence of sorrow shows that sin has won the battle for your soul. The Holy Spirit's not able to speak to you, not able to convict you, not able to redirect you back on your life, then even if you're still attending church and you're still going through religious motions, you know your heart is far from him. It's a major red flag and a major problem in our life when we're saying, hey, I'm following Jesus, but yet we don't have sorrow over our sin. Potentially, the sin of pride has won. It has victory in your life. It's a major problem for us as followers of Jesus if we don't have sorrow over people who are far from God. It can show that the sin of apathy has won in your life. As you look and you reflect on your life, you You've been serving God for a long time. You think, and you begin to evaluate your life, and, you, you know, and you're saying, I am doing things in my life that I never would have done 10 years ago. I never would have done five years ago. You can potentially see where you've worn down your conscience. You've worn down on your ability to feel sorrow for your sin. Absence of sorrow can mean the victory of sin, but it doesn't stop there. The presence of sorrow in our life can bring us into the presence of God. Now, I say can because sorrow doesn't always mean godly sorrow. I've, um, I've a, a number of uh, years ago, I was reading a story about a pastor who had, uh, had an affair on his wife. And, and as he recounted getting caught, um, he was sobbing, weeping, um, uh, trembling, and uh, completely broken over getting caught. And you can experience sorrow and deep emotion because you get caught and you have to face the consequences of your sin, but that does not mean that you feel sorrow over the sin you've committed against God. Because all of a sudden you realize you got caught, and so now you didn't necessarily want the marriage to end, but it's ending. Now you've lost access to your kids, um, you've lost your home, you've lost your retirement, and just the weight of the consequence leads you to sorrow. But it doesn't lead. But it's not sorrow over your sin; it's sorrow over the consequences. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse number ten says. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. 
But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. There's a big difference over feeling sorry for what you've done and feeling sorry for what you've done against God. Huge difference. It says, it's as drastic as death and life. We're not called to just be guilty. We're not called to just pretend that we're sorrowful over our sin. We're to have a real understanding of what our sin has done to our God. Jesus tells us, um, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's God's delight and it's his joy to when you ask him for forgiveness, that he's able to forgive you. That's what he sent Jesus for. We, we think that God is angry at us, and, I, and I've prayed this before, but that when we go to God, that he's ready to backhand us, and that's not his response. He doesn't come with a backhand. He comes with open hands. He's ready to receive us and love us and, and work in our life and, and wipe the tears from our eyes. He's not there to punish us and, and beat us and, and scream at us. And that's so much different than the picture of God that we have. In the Bible, there's the account of Adam and Eve, who were the first people that God created. And they sinned, and they sinned big time. And we try to think of it like, oh, Adam and Eve, you know, they screwed up and made it bad for the rest of us. But they sinned against God. It wasn't that they sinned against us or, or that, you know, because they ate of the fruit of the tree of life and death that, or the tree of the fruit of knowledge that they um, that they just made everything bad. But what they did was they sinned against God. And so what they did next is the response we all tend to have is they went and tried to hide from God. Now, listen, you can't do that. You may be here and no one knows you here in our service, but God knows where you are. You could try to leave church like that girl did when you, you know, when you're uh, nine years old and, and disappear and go to, you know, and, and try to hide. But God knows where you are and he's after you. He wants you back. So you can be in that place like Adam and Eve where you've sinned and you're trying to hide, but it's like you're trying to hide from God. It's like playing hide-and-go-seek with a one-year-old. Like There's nowhere you can hide from God. So he knows where you are, and with Adam and Eve, they've sinned, and he's like, hey, where are you? Where are you? He knew where they were. And they finally come out, and they're like, oh, we're here. And he's like, what have you done? And he's like, well, we've sinned. What does God do in response to that? It shows us who he is and how he cares about us. God, that was the first time where they understood that they were naked, and so they had shame and, and sin. And what did God do? God made them close. That shows us God's compassion for us, his care for us. So when we're sorrowful over our sin and what we've done toward God, the presence of God comes rushing back into our life. In all those places where sin used to be and addiction used to be and selfishness used to be, when we, when we are aware of that and we, and we ask God for forgiveness, now the presence of God is there and the righteousness of Jesus is there. The presence of God is overwhelming. And it doesn't just stop there, but as we go on to read in the, in the, the song that 
the presence, so absence of sorrow can mean victory of sin. Presence of sorrow will, if you're repentant, bring the presence of God. But then the presence of God brings victory over sin. And when you're sorrowful over the sin you've committed about God and then the presence of God overwhelms you, the amazing thing is from there, you're free from that sin. Some of you have been struggling with some things for a long time. It's an addiction or, or just as a personality trait that you just keep mistreating your spouse or your kids or it's a laziness that you keep losing job after job. When, the, when you're sorrowful over your sin and the presence of God comes into your life, you have victory over that. It cannot hold you back and it cannot keep you from going forward and doing what God has called you to do. Look at verses number uh, 9 and 10 in that psalm. David writes, The Lord has heard my plea, and the Lord will answer my prayer. May all my enemies be disgraced and terrified. May they suddenly turn back in shame. If at any point you've given your life to Jesus, whether that was uh, 30 years ago, whether that was in the middle of this sermon, whether it was last week, the moment you give your life to Jesus and you ask and you tell him you're going to follow him and you ask him to forgive you and be your savior, at that point, you are no longer a sinner. And in the church world, we, we tend to believe there's this saying that just goes through every church, and we say it without even knowing what we're, what we're meaning, but it's not true. And we say, oh, I'm a sinner saved by grace, or we say, oh, I'm a sinner. And that's not true, and we're all kind of be guilty of saying that. The correct theological, our correct theological standing and the, and the correct truth is you're no, you're no longer a sinner, but you are now a saint. You've been forgiven. You've been changed. You're not a sinner anymore once you've made that decision and the presence of God has come in. So it's not like you're just stuck in the sin and you're going to struggle for the rest of your life. No, there's victory in the presence of God. Your enemies and, and, and your sins, they have to flee. And we sang it uh, in the worship set this morning. Um, you uh, I did this first service too. I can't remember the words of the song. But Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. It can't stick around. You have to be changed. You will change when you are immersed in the presence of God. So you're not a sinner. You are a saint. We just think about this last thing before I close in prayer and we, and we do some baptisms here. When, um, when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, hours before he was going to be executed, hours before he was going to be killed, and he had done nothing wrong. He had never sinned. He was experiencing deep sorrow. And at the garden, it said he was in such agony, he was sweating drops of blood, and, and he was in such agony over sin and what was about to happen and, and what was about to happen on the cross as he was going to take our sin upon his shoulder. He, he prayed a prayer. He said, God, if there's any other way, Father, my Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any plan B that I don't have to go through with this, please, please do it. He was in such agony such sorrow. And he said, but then he said, but not my will, but your will. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And so he walked forward on that cross. And he died on that cross because of the sin you and I have committed. And he died on that cross. And then 
and then three days later rose from the grave that we would have victory over sin, we would have forgiveness, we could have right standing with God. And so God doesn't look at you as a sinner, he looks at you and he sees the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus as you are asking him to be your savior and as you are being honest with him and asking for forgiveness for the, the, the sins that you've committed. And that is why David wrote this song. My eyes are swollen. I've cried so much. My bed is drenched. But I'm not staying there anymore because God, you're good. Because God, you make my enemies flee. Because God, you don't keep me there. You recognize who and what God's done in you you don't beat yourself up. You don't hold your head in shame, but you sometimes hold your head in humility. God, thank you for being good to me. If you're comfortable, will you close your eyes? I want to pray for you. Some of you here today, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, and it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to have your heart, your life changed no application. You don't have to convince God that you're worthy. You just ask him to forgive you. You can pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I believe that you're God's son, and I believe that I need a savior. So I ask you to forgive all of my sins, and I choose today to follow you. And you pray that. And from the inside out of your life, he changes you. Every wrong thing you've done, he's forgiven you. You are his now. You're a, the Bible says you're a child of God. Jesus, I pray for those in here who have been following you for a long time and maybe their conscience has, has just been worn down because they've been pushing against it and, and, and crossing barriers and, and, and God just, they're far from where you'd have them to live. I pray right now as they confess their sin to you that your presence would invade their hearts in a powerful way, that they would feel a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit that they haven't felt in years or decades, that they'd feel your goodness in their heart, in their life, that you'd overwhelm them with sorrow, a good godly sorrow that leads to salvation, and may they get victory over these sins in their life in Jesus' mighty name name we pray. Amen.